reading Micah 5, verse 1 to 2, and then Luke 2, verse 1 to 7. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Luke 2 verse 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was gov- governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Excellent. Good morning, everyone. I'm Etienne, and um, I just sense that, um, you know, there's a lot of deep things going on this morning, and can I just pray for us for a minute, and then I'll, then I'll talk. Our God, we ask, I ask that this morning you will do a deep work in us, as I believe you already have. Holy Spirit, make us open, let us hear, and let us receive life from your word this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in a a short series on a theme that we call Not What I Expected. Last week we talked a little bit about some things in the life of Mary, a woman called Mary, things that she did not expect. This morning I want to tell you two things from the passage that Anika read to us. Two things that you would not expect or may not have expected, not from Mary, but from God. Two things about God that's not really what you may have expected. And that's going to lead us to what we call the Lord's Supper, with which we will eventually conclude this message. Okay, there's the first bit of the the Luke passage that Anika read to us this morning. I'm not going to read it again, but I'm going to to tell you what is the question that it wants us to ask. Here's the question that's 
buried deeply into those passages. The question is, who is in control? Got that question? Hold on to it. Who is in control? It would appear, as you sort of read that passage and you go and dig a little bit on its surface, that it's, it's, it's this man here. He, it's not a literal photo of him, but he, he is Caesar Augustus, or you might have known him as Octavian. He's the Roman Empire, emperor of the time where Jesus was born. This is about 2,000 years ago. And he has the sheer authority and might and power to issue a decree to the whole known world at that time and say, here's what you're going to do. Everyone who lives under our authority and our rule, which no one ever invited, by the way, the Romans rocked up into your country and they said, you will be subject to us or else we will essentially torture you. Crucifixion, that was their thing. You know that from the life of Jesus if you're a Christian, but look, Jesus certainly, while unique in his death, absolutely, was not the only one crucified. The Romans crucified hundreds, if not thousands of people. I think the longest was along a stretch of road where on both sides they had these rows of crosses saying to people that you will submit to our authority. We are in control. And so... When Caesar says, we will let everyone be counted in our realm, you get counted. A census, presumably to organise taxes, how much they can take from those whom they oppress. And so we read, Joseph and Mary are on their way to Bethlehem, where, 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 where Joseph's from. You had to go to the place from where you, were, uh, 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 where you were born, or the male was born. And I, I wonder if, along each step of this way, of the 145 kilometres that they had to walk each way, if this is the question that they are confronted with in their faces, who is in control? It would appear that it's Caesar, right? Or is it? The writer of this passage in Luke says something in there that wants you and I to think about that. Is it, in fact, Caesar? And here's how, here's how he gets us to want to think about it. Uh, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went to Bethlehem. There's something crucial about this little place that, that you can easily miss out, and, and yet you'll, you'll fail to understand the depth of the question, who is in control? Let me stay with me as I take you through that. 700 years before this moment, when this couple walks on their way to Bethlehem, uh, 700 years before that, there's a man whose name was Micah, and, and here's what he said. But you, O Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one 
who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, or better translated even, from days of eternity. Get that. Out of you, Bethlehem, where where Joseph and Mary are on their way to, 700 years before that, God moves a man to say that out of you, Bethlehem, will come whose origins are from out of eternity. From eternity, someone will be born in this little place called Bethlehem. And let me ask you the question again. Who is in control? I put it to you, the the, the thing we're meant to get from this passage, and it's powerful, is is (laughs) despite what it appears, God is in control. Despite what it may look like, God is in control. And that is true today as as much as it was then. God is in control of COVID-19. God is in control of the American election. God is in control of China. God is in control of a digital era in which humanity has no idea really what to do and how to live, and its confusion is more than perhaps it ever has been in the last hundred years. And you know what? God is in control of your life, (laughs) your future, what's going to happen to you, where you will end up, (laughs) who you will be. Get that. God is in control. Above and beyond whoever and whatever seems to be in control in your life or in human existence, God is in control. Now, let me put it to you. That, that will evoke one of two responses. And you judge your own heart this morning where you're at here. For some people, this is a threat. And it, and it comes out in in, in, in anger or in, or in an arrogant questioning, if, if God is in control, then why this? Why is there a Caesar? Why is there a Roman Empire? Why do I have to go to Bethlehem? Stuff God. Ultimately, underneath that is not, it's not an anger, it's, it's a threat. He and his sovereignty is a threat to you. Because you want to be in control. You want to think that you are in control of your own destiny, your own life, and and you are like the actors in this whole Christmas story, a guy named Herod, who we will meet next week, Caesar himself. God is a threat to you. And friend, I pray, I pray that somehow you would realize that you are not in control. None of us are. And I pray that you will understand that you not being in control is a great thing. (laughs) Because here's the other response that we have to this point, that of Joseph and Mary. You know, we know that from the Christmas story, right? 
They, I believe, I might be speculating here, but I think it's consistent with their character. <laughs> they are walking to Bethlehem and they are saying to themselves, yes, I, I don't know why we've got to go to Bethlehem. I don't know why the Romans, I don't know why Caesar, I don't know why the uncertainty, I don't know all this stuff that I did not expect, but you know what? I believe that God is in control. And you know what that gives me? Comfort. Comfort. Comfort that there is nothing in my life, despite how it appears, that will render me out of the control of a loving and sovereign God whose I am, who was in control of all things for all time, who from eternity had a plan and a purpose and an idea of how his world would go, and who has for some reason that I don't even know decided that I should be part of that plan and have a place in it. <laughs> wow! God is in control. And it is good news. It's comforting. And my prayer is, is, is simply that, that for you, the fact that God is in control would be what it most likely was for Mary and for Joseph. It is good news. It's comforting. And praise God that he is in control. Not me. Not the government. No one else. That's point one. God's in control. Now, point two. Point two is a contrast because point one gets us to think of grandeur, really, the, 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 the almighty greatness of God. Point two goes the opposite direction. You know, during the week I read a story of the birth of um, Mary... Antoinette's first child. She was the French queen during the French Revolution, Marie Antoinette, or shall I say Marie Antoinette, if you will. Any French people here? Good, so you can't judge that accent. <laughs> uh, when she gave birth to her first child, at some point just before the birth, some uh, official yelled out, the queen is about to give birth. And into that chamber rushed no less than 200 courtiers and politicians and everyone who's everyone to come in and watch the queen give birth. The, the, the king had to order that the, the, the lavish tapestries and stuff, I mean, they were sort of the Caesars of the day, right, uh, had to be tightened, that hung around her bed, had to be tightened with extra thick rope because literally people were clambering up these things to watch <laughs> this poor woman, if you could say that of Mary Antoinette, give, give birth, you know. Today's royals are different. They don't do that sort of stuff. But let's be honest, uh, a, a royal birth today pumps millions, if not billions, into uh, the tabloid industry. It's a big deal when a royal gets born, right? <laughs> what happens when the sovereign of all things is born? Here's the contrast. Cryptic, but it's there. There's no room for him. She wrapped him in cloths. She, she, she placed him in a manger because 
there was nowhere for him and no one knew he came. And probably no one was interested. Let me be the Grinch for a while. The Grinch who stole Christmas. I think there's something about the way our culture presents the birth of Jesus, and I'm talking about Christian culture, not, not even wider culture, that kind of doesn't really help us to, to grasp what this was exactly meant to convey to us. Here's what I mean. When you look at a nativity scene, and I'm not preaching against nativity scenes, I've got one at home. I want to add something that we should see in there that we normally don't see. But you can't help. You can't help going to a school play and you watch white, fluffy sheep and hay bales and a baby that smiles and a donkey that smiles. Is he smiling? He is smiling. That donkey that smiles with fairy lights and and ambience, and the carols that are so good that go with it. You know what it sort of stirs in you? A sense of charm. Charm. Idyllic perfection. You know what the birth of Jesus should stir in you? Shock. I was in the Solomon Islands a number of years ago with a nurse. We were going to some village and giving some basic uh, medical care to some of the people who lived there, and they were kind enough to let us use their village clinic. Hmm. I was shocked. I walked into a concrete floor that was rougher than anything I've ever seen didn't know concrete could be that rough. In the middle of it, there was a plastic chair. It had a lot of dried blood all over it. There were tables laden with dust, buckets with, I don't want to know what in them. It was very smelly. It was very hot. It was very, very dingy. And as we walked in, the local village chief person said, just give us a moment. We're just getting this fixed. Someone just gave birth here. I was shocked. No matter that the vast majority of the 130 million babies worldwide get born in circumstances like that, that's normal, right? But for my West and sanitized mind, I was shocked that a child could come into circumstances as imperfect as that. Out of all the places that the sovereign of the universe could choose to come to be born, he chose a place like that. Shockingly beneath human dignity. 
shockingly broken. And we have to ask ourselves the question, if the one who controls all minutiae chose that, why? Why those circumstances? I believe he wanted to say something to us. And here's what I believe he wanted to say to us. God is for the broken, the lowly, the humble. If your life looks like a plastic chair with blood all over it, imperfect, undignifying, inhumane, ugly, messed up, you're ridden with guilt, it's imperfect. It is that you should know that Jesus came to be born into a life like yours. Not in the charming, perfect circumstance. He is for you. If you are proud, if you think your life is like the perfect nativity set full of charm and put together, stop kidding yourself. It's not. It may look like that. But the truth is we're all in the face of our Creator evenly messed up and broken. And so that's the second thing I think we're meant to get from this passage is that God is for the humble, the broken, those who lie on beds for six weeks, not able to scratch their faces. It is there where you will find the grace of God. It is there where the Christ child has come to be born. You will find him there. Nowhere else. Hmm. So let me now take us to the place where where we'll go this morning. We'll go to the table. I'll just perhaps pray for us and then I'll get the bread and the wine to be handed out and then we'll take it together. Uh, Kids, you're in this morning. Follow mum and dad's lead. If uh, mum and dad allow you to participate, do so. If not, uh, don't. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Oh God, we can scarcely fathom the weight of what it means that you are in full control and despite that, that you are mindful of us. <laughs> Thank you that you're in control and no one and nothing else, not even us. <laughs> I pray for those this morning who need the comfort of that truth, that the comfort would be real, would be felt, dare I say, would be sensed, encountered, experienced, true. That despite everything that goes on, despite the seizures that they see, that they would know that above that, above the clouds, the sun shines, you're still there, you're still in control, and nothing is happening in our lives that will not bring about your purpose and your good. I pray for those who are threatened, Father, would you break us? Would you bring us low? Not to be cruel to us, Lord, but that we may see ourselves exactly for what we are. 
needy. Needy of your grace. (laughs) Needy of gratefulness that you are in control and that we are not. And Father, I pray for those this morning who knows that their lives are blood-covered, full of stench, entangled in all manner of imperfection and vice, and to know that you are for them. To not be like Peter who, when he saw you, said, go away from me, but say, come, please, enter, fill me, (laughs) and thank you. Father, will you draw us, all of us, in whatever our imperfections are, very close to you, Lord Jesus. And now as we celebrate your supper, may it accomplish in us what you seek for it too. May you nourish us, may you reassure us, perhaps even may you save us for the first time. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, can those who hand out the bread and the wine please do so? And once it's done, just hold on to your piece of bread, your piece of your cup of wine, and then, um, then I'll talk again. Thank you.
The place in the Bible where we read in beautiful form about this shocking humility of God's. It's in Philippians that it talks about Jesus. And it says, He who being in very nature God, the one in full control of all things, didn't consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And that's what we spoke of this morning. That's the birth of Jesus. That's pretty low. It's pretty humble. Except... He goes so much lower still. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the thing that you carry in your hands right now, the reminder that such is our humble God. He went to death on a cross so that your brokenness and your imperfections and your ugliness may be cleaned, may be fixed, may be healed, that you, if you believe it, will have a place in his plan, in his purposes, and nothing can take that away from you. And I invite you this morning as you eat the bread, as you drink the wine, let it bring you the comfort that we spoke of. Let it make concrete in you what you believe, that it's sure, it's firm, it will happen. So, the bread that we break is the body of Christ broken for a complete forgiveness of all our sins. Take it, eat it, remember and believe that the body was broken for a complete forgiveness of all our sins. Let's eat together. And the cup that you hold in your hands, 
I might dare call it this morning the cup of comfort. Take it, drink from it, remember and believe that the blood of Christ was poured out, that you may have real comfort, true comfort, abiding comfort, never-ending comfort, no matter what. Let's drink together. Jesus, thank you. Amen. All right, music team, thank you.